this book, to which Shelley referred, um, it was an attempt on my part to write a user-friendly book. Usually books, history books, spring, if you will, full-blown from the head of Zeus. You know, the writer gets a thesis, goes out, digs up evidence, tries to argue the case and persuade everybody else that he's a genius. Okay. I actually, this book emerged out of evenings like this. For years, I taught a course on the history of the Holocaust. I gave lectures in public about the history of the Holocaust. Both the students who came into the course and the people to whom I lectured on public occasions almost always asked me the same questions. And I'm a slow learner, but after a while, I realized they were telling me how to organize my class. And I did that for, I taught for 36 years, taught the course for 25 times. And the book is the outcome. This is a book in which each chapter is a question. And the question is one of these things that people kept asking me over the years. OK, I wanted the book to be user friendly. I would like the lecture to be user friendly, especially because we're up after my bedtime right now. And so uh, I'm not going to go through all eight questions. I'm going to boil them down to two and try to show you how, in the book, I deal with issues like this. The first question um, is deceptively simple. Why were the Jews killed? And the second question is, why couldn't anyone stop it? Or didn't anyone stop it? Now, that's what these eight questions fundamentally come down to. And historians have been wrestling with this for now, well, 40, 45 years. But the real progress in the field has been made in the last 30 years. And it's been incredibly rapid. We have learned so much that one of the arguments I make in this book is many of the things that people think they know about the Holocaust have become obsolete. Research has established that there are a great many myths around the subject. A historian whom I admire, a guy named Tony Jack, once said that impossible to describe as it really was, the Holocaust is inherently vulnerable to being remembered as it wasn't. And I think both parts of that sentence are true. So let me start with the question of why the Jews were killed. There is a long, well-established tradition in communities dominated by the Christian faith of treating Jews as a source of contamination, and that contamination as being regarded as either different, which may be harmless, or dangerous, which is extremely, which is the opposite of being harmless. For roughly uh, 1,700 years, Christianity taught that it had superseded the religious teachings of Judaism. And those people who clung to those traditions were, in fact, a threat to Christianity. This is the origin of all of the restrictions on professional activities of Jews, the origin of the ghettos, and so forth. The whole thrust behind it from the time that Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire until the Enlightenment of the 18th century was to contain Jews so that they would not undermine the faith of Christians. And this meant largely to segregate them as much as possible. Beginning in the 18th century, under the impact of the ideas of the Enlightenment and then the ideals of the French Revolution, European societies began to undo the restrictions that had long kept Jews at arm's length. The process began, which we know as emancipation, the elimination of the occupational and residential restrictions on Jews. It occurred relatively rapidly between seven, the 1780s and the, the peak of Napoleonic rule in Europe. When Napoleon fell, it was largely rolled back in many places. And then the rollback was rolled back. And so between 1815 and 1918, all across the European continent, Jews were emancipated. They were relieved of these restrictions. It didn't happen overnight. It roughly traveled from west to east across the continent. In the case of Romania and the Russian Empire, it had to basically be forced on those states by the Bolshevik Revolution, which led to emancipation. Or in the case of Romania, where the Jews were still restricted, the allies at the Paris Peace Conference insisted on their emancipation as a condition for assigning some of the territory of the Austro-Hungarian Empire to Romania. Voluntarily, gradually, haltingly, ultimately by compulsion, all of the states of Europe adopted the emancipation of the Jews. Now, this set in motion a social process that Europeans were 
not quite fully conscious of. What it meant is a people who had historically been regarded as contaminated, literally dirty, were now able to compete on an even footing with non-Jews. They were able to enter professions from which they had been barred. They were able to go to university. They were able to occupy positions that had historically been denied to them. And this occurred at a time when European society was undergoing great change as a result of the Industrial Revolution and the spread of democracy and so forth. The twin processes introduced positive developments for Jews, greater opportunities, and negative developments for Jews, the rise of a new kind of hostility toward them, a hostility which was captured by a new word, anti-Semitism. It was not invented till 1879. It was explicitly invented as a euphemism, a way of justifying hatred for Jews that posed as more rational and scientific than the old religious animosity, because it said that all Jews are the same. They are Semites. They are people who are shaped, what is Semites? Semites is not an ethnic group. It's a linguistic group. It's Arabic, Aramaic, Hebrew, so forth. The claim of the anti-Semites was these people were shaped by their original language, which is fundamentally different from European languages, all of which descend, well, with the exception of Hungarian, Finnish, and Basque, they all defend, descend from Sanskrit. And they basically adopt the grammatical models that Sanskrit provided to these languages. What the anti-Semites said, now again, this is pseudoscience, but what they pretended to offer to people was a rational statement of why Jews are intrinsically different from the other European populations. They are shaped by their original language, and then some of them also said by their original desert origins, to have an entirely different mentality than everybody else. This is, of course, we now know pseudoscience, mumbo-jumbo. But it had an audience in 19th century Europe, and the audience was people who were affected by those other processes I talked about. Because as the Jews were emancipated, and opportunities were open to them, and many Jews took advantage of the opportunities. They went to university, they became lawyers, they became doctors, they became high officials, and so forth, which they had never done in previous generations. As this was happening, other people were losing. People who were being uh, displaced by the Industrial Revolution. People who were, in many cases, farmers, who were being subjected to the forces of modern transportation, which meant that they had to compete not just against farmers in their neighborhood, but farmers who could import grain from foreign places and so forth. People were increasingly subject to the vagaries of the stock market and the grain markets and so forth. Economic change always creates winners and losers. The audience for anti-Semitism in 19th century Europe was generally the people who were losing. And their antagonism was directed at the Jews because it was perceived that these people who were previously invisible and contained some of them had emerged and become powerful competitors in the society. This is the process that went on. Now, up until World War I, this was vocal, it was loud, people wrote lots of books denouncing Jews, many of the books became bestsellers. But in most countries, people who said, the solution to our problem is to repeal the freedom of the Jews, failed politically. And the great example of this is Germany, the place to which our attention is going to be directed in a few minutes. Up until 1912, there were many political parties that ran for office in Germany claiming, as the famous German historian Heinrich von Treitschke said, the Jews are our misfortune. Die Juden sind unser Unglück. Ran on that slogan, the Nazis later emblazoned it at their party rallies and on the top of their party newspaper and so forth. They were loud, they were vocal, they agitated, and they were political failures. The anti-Semitic parties in, not in uh, Imperial Germany before World War I never got more than 5% of the vote, never got more than 5.5% of the seats in the parliament. So there was this ideology of hostility that persisted, but as a political movement, it did not itself have enough traction to bring people together. What changed in Germany was, of course, the rise of Hitler, the rise of a fanatic who believed deeply in this ideology. And he rose, one of the ironies of anti-Semitism is it claims that Jews are parasites on the body politic, that they are always trying to exploit the, the non-Jewish population among, amongst which they live. 
but anti-Semitism as a political movement is a parasitic movement. It never has succeeded on its own. It only succeeds when it can latch on to a general crisis that is affecting a large number of people and then can say to those people, see, the Jews are your problem. If you remove these people who didn't used to be part of our society and go back to the way it was in the old days, everything else will go back to the wonderful way it was in the old days and you will no longer be the losers by economic change and so forth. This was a limited message. The audience was limited for this message up until World War I. But in Germany after World War I, the audience expanded exponentially. Why? The nation was humiliated by defeat. The peace treaty was adverse. The economic consequences, not entirely of the peace treaty, but Germans blamed them on the peace treaty, were catastrophic. German currency inflated in the early 1920s to 4.2 trillion to the dollar. Literally not worth the paper it was written on. Then comes the depression in 1929. 33% of the people are out of work within four years. Stock market falls by 45%. I go on and on and on. Every index that you can think of that was true of this country after the Great Recession in 2008, every one of those indexes is doubled or tripled for what happened to Germany during the Depression. All of this created an audience for a man who had no audience before it happened. In 1924, there were two elections in Germany. The Nazis got 6% of the vote, both times. In 1928, there was a parliamentary election. Hitler got 2.6% of the vote. Everyone knew they were anti-Semites. Everyone knew their message was, the Jews are our misfortune. All your problems are caused by the Jews, the Marxists, the Allies, people who've done this to you. Okay? 2.6% of the vote. Stock market crash 1929, election of 1930, 18% of the vote. All the German banks failed in 1931. In 1932, 37% of the vote. And that was his peak, 37% of the vote. When Adolf Hitler came to power, he was appointed in January of 1933 as chancellor or prime minister of Germany. 55% of the Germans had never voted for him. He came into power because there was a, the way the German constitution was constructed, when nobody had a complete majority, the president could pick the person to be the prime minister. And he was persuaded by a cabal of people around him, the president was 80 years old at the time, 82 I think, uh, he was persuaded that Hitler was controllable, that other people would know how to manage him. Why? He'd never been to university, he'd never held office before. These guys thought, we're the pros, we'll manipulate him. And then the mischievous proverb in German is, nothing is eaten as hot as it's cooked. And this was the excuse people made. Yeah, he's an anti-Semitic agitator. He says these things. He'll never do it. He won't, that, he won't act on that. And so it won't be as bad as you think it'll be. And so This is the process that brought him into power. It was not that Germans voted for anti-Semitism. It is that anti-Semitism didn't stop Germans from voting for him. And then didn't stop people from thinking that they could put him into power and trust him and control him. Once he got into power, what he demonstrated, of course, is that power magnifies the ideas of those who hold it. If you have the capacity to make the ground rules for a society, and he did within six months, he swept away, he got a, uh, a parliamentary vote that allowed him to rule by decree, he swept away the state governments, he removed the power of the judiciary to stop him, he basically closed down the other political parties, and by July of 1933, he was the ruler of a one-party state. After that, there was nothing there to stop him. Being an anti-Semite, might have seemed to many people in 1930 or 1931 to be crude and vulgar and something they wouldn't express. After 1933, it was your patriotic duty to express anti-Semitism. It was your ticket to advancement, because if Jews were removed from their positions, other positions would be open to you, and you would get those positions if you mouthed the rhetoric of the party. This was the setting in which Hitler took off. And then there were other forms of rationalizations for compliance. In the first place, there were many Germans who had not voted for Hitler, uh, who didn't like anti-Semitism, but they liked a lot of other things he might want to do. They liked the idea of removing the Treaty of Versailles. They liked the idea of economic revival. No, no other political party looked, had looked from 1929 to 1932 as if it could turn the depression around. Let him have a try. There was what we call a partial identity of interest. The generals liked the idea of rearming Germany. The leading firms 
thought that economic, the, the suppression of the trade unions would be good for them. Everybody had enough of an overlap, everybody except the Jews, had enough of an overlap with Hitler to go along with what he wanted. And thus, he was able to indoctrinate and intimidate a society into becoming, but let me put it the other way. 55% of the Germans had not voted for him when he came to office, 1933. Ten years later, a whole lot more than 55% of the Germans were acting as if they had voted for him, were doing exactly what he wanted them to do. And thus you find the price, one of the answers we'll, I'll talk about in a minute about why nobody could stop this, is by 1942, when the murders were at their crest, there was very little opposition within German society to what was being done. In fact, there was a widespread endorsement of what was being done. So, Nazi Germany became an echo chamber in which <clears throat> the Nazis established principles of good and evil. And the principles were not the Golden Rule or the Ten Commandments. What was good is what was good for the establishment of German power in the inevitable con uh, competition of states. What was bad was anything that weakened German power. Jews were defined as a source that weakened German power. Germans were therefore repeatedly indoctrinated in the notion that to oppose Jews was to oppose the enemies of the country. And remember, this is a country in which there were no foreign news outlets. There was no TV coming in from abroad. There was nothing. Foreign newspapers and periodicals were banned. It was an echo chamber in which this is the relentless message that people heard. Now, at least initially, terrible as this was, what the regime appeared to be doing was cutting down the rights of Jews, segregating them again, rolling back the emancipation, making sure they couldn't have positions that had influence over other Germans. So they were driven out of the civil service. They were driven out of political life. They were driven out of cultural life, the cultural newspapers and theaters and so forth, because that has influence over the non-Jews. But Hitler's word of choice was always, in the run-up to his getting power, and in the 30s when he had power, <clears throat> that the goal was to remove Jews. The German verb is entfernen, to, to drive them out, to make them go far away. The vocabulary and the policy began to change. And began to change, we can identify it pretty clearly, in 1938. This is not only, of course, the dramatic time when the Kristallnacht occurs, when the burning of the synagogues and so on. It's also when the Nazis literally began to talk differently. Up until 1938, German newspapers do not speak of the annihilation of the Jews. But beginning in November 1938, they do. And this happens, I think, because the Nazis recognize a fundamental contradiction in their policies. And they don't recognize it until this moment because they haven't had to. The two policies that are fundamentally contradictory is Nazism believed in racial purity, get the Jews out. It also believed in living space, the expansion of Germany into territory that would be sufficient to support its status as a great power. The living space was always defined as Eastern Europe, Poland, Ukraine, what we know, Lithuania, Belarus. The contradiction is that's where most of Europe's Jews were. And as the, the Germans, the Nazi regime, drove Jews out of Germany, it also, in the early 30s, it began to expand into areas that had equal, if not larger, numbers of Jews. So they had driven 200,000 Jews out by 1938, and then they took Austria. And then they took the Sudetenland. And then they took what we now call the Czech Republic. And basically, they were chasing their tails. The number of people, the number of Jews they were getting as the borders expanded was almost equal to the number they had driven out up until then. And their next target was Poland, where there were 3.3 million Jews. And then the Soviet Union, where there were probably two and a half altogether. The objective of Lebensraum and the objective of purity ran against each other. And this clearly begins to dawn on them after they begin expanding Austria. And the Munich Conference comes just before Kristallnacht, the Sudetenland. And then you suddenly see that Nazi officials speak a different language. Uh, Ernst von Weizsäcker, who's the number two man in the German foreign ministry, went to Paris for the funeral of Ernst von Rath, who was the man who was shot in Paris at the embassy that triggered the Kristallnacht. 
And after the funeral, he went and had a late afternoon lunch with the Swiss ambassador in Paris and said to that ambassador, if the Jews do not leave Germany, they are going bald oder spät ihren völligen Vernichtung entgegen, sooner or later to their complete annihilation. Vernichtung is the word. Two weeks later, the SS magazine, Das Schwarze Korps, says if Jews stay in this country, they cannot expect that we will tolerate this band of criminals. They will be removed by fire and sword. It will end in their complete annihilation. On January 21st, a few weeks later, Hitler says to the Czech foreign minister, basically the same thing. If they don't leave, and of course it was very difficult for them to leave, if they don't leave, it will lead to their complete annihilation. And on January 30th, 1939, he announces to the Reichstag that if we come to a second world war in Europe, it will be brought on by the Jews, and it will not produce the defeat of Germany, but the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. Now the vocabulary is pivotal. What they have decided at this point is they no longer can achieve, they're not quite convinced, but it's unlikely that they can achieve the removal of the Jews, which is what they've been saying thereafter. And then when they invade Poland in 1939 and take two-thirds of the country and two-thirds of the Jews and suddenly have two million more Jews to handle, they hit on the idea of ghettoization. They will bring all the Jews together in occupied Poland, usually in cities that are near railheads, because someday, when they win the war, which they expect to be very soon, they can deport them to a faraway place. The first target is Madagascar, an island off the African coast. It's not their idea. French anti-Semites thought this up in the 1870s. They just take the idea up and say, this is what we'll do. But they don't win the Battle of Britain. They don't defeat the British, and therefore the British fleet is between them and Madagascar. So as they're thinking in 1940 about invading the Soviet Union the following year, they say, well, if we win the war against the Soviet Union, we can deport all the Jews to the Arctic Circle in Siberia, and we'll do that. So this is the thought process. They have, they have moved from removal to thinking about annihilation to actually adopting a deportation solution that will lead to a lot of killing. You cannot send six, seven million European Jews to the island of Madagascar and expect them to live. So they're already implicitly thinking about killing. And then they launched the invasion of the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941. At this point, they say to themselves, for the last two years, we have been managing ghettos in Poland. It's complicated. It's difficult to feed them, even at the low rates that we're providing. They are centers of disease. There are, because, of course, they've created the conditions for disease. This management problem we need to avoid. As we march into the Soviet Union, we can kill the Jews in our path under the cover of military operations. We can claim that all of these people in front of us who are Jewish are potential saboteurs and partisans, and we can shoot them. And there's nobody to record this because there are no embedded journalists from foreign countries and so forth. So they have a motive, and now they have an opportunity. And they do this, but they realize that it has a downside, that even the people who do the shooting, many of whom are indoctrinated in the ideology that they have to, need to get very drunk in order to do it. It's painful to do this. And even Himmler concludes that he is creating a generation of psychotics. And so there has to be a way of killing, for the Nazis, the way they're thinking, we have to have a way of killing large numbers of people with a little distance between us and them. A way that is, and they actually said this, more humane for the perpetrators. And they realize in September of 1941 that they have one. They've already been gassing the inhabitants of German mental institutions since 1939 because those people are no value to the war effort and they're just draining the food supply. They've been doing that with carbon monoxide. In September of 1941, they realized that they, at most military bases in the country, um, particularly ports where submarines come back or particularly barracks installations, they have a pesticide that they use to fumigate the barracks to kill all the lice when the soldiers are not in them. And they do the same thing with U-boats when they come back into port. The, the, they get all the, the, uh, the, the personnel off the boat, and they bring a can of this stuff, which is called Zyklon. And they bring a can, usually it was about this size, and you pop it with what, in my college days, was called a church key. Okay? And that's all you need to do, because the substance inside is hydrocyanic acid, which is held in pellets. And when oxygen at a temperature above 70 degrees comes in contact with the pellets, 
the hydrocyanic acid, which is liquid, it's absorbed in the pellets, vaporizes. One thirty-third of an ounce of that gas will kill a 150-pound person in two minutes. It's absolutely lethal. At Auschwitz, which was a concentration camp populated largely by Polish political prisoners in um, 19, September 1941, the, uh, a lieutenant basically connects the dots and says, we have a method of killing large numbers of people. We have this stuff, and it's already in the storeroom. So they tested on 600 Soviet prisoners of war at the beginning of September 1941 by locking them in the basement of one of the old barracks at Auschwitz, and it had cantilevered windows, so you could open them down. They popped it, they threw the thing in, they closed the windows, they waited to see how long it would take people to die. They learned that um, it's much more effective if you knock out the walls in the basement, so they can spread over the whole space. That was, and, and, and what happened in that experiment was some people took an hour or two to die, and some people died very quickly, so they learned that. They also recognized something else. The stuff is incredibly cheap. It was four and a half marks, roughly two bucks, for, um, uh, for a container uh, of a kilogram. A kilogram is 2.2 pounds. You can quickly do the math. One thirty-third of an ounce kills a person. Two pounds has how many thirty-thirds of an ounce? I can't do it, but it's, you, you realize how many you can kill. Uh, I've actually worked this out for um, Auschwitz. The cost per corpse was one US cent in 1942. They had methods. Now they had a method. They had motive, they had opportunity, now they had a method. It was incredibly inexpensive. It could be applied. The carbon monoxide that killed two million people in gas chambers, twice as many as Zyklon killed, could be generated in captured Russian tank engines, and gasoline was not in short supply. Uh, and that was enormously efficient in wiping out large numbers of people. So this is a process that was low overhead, low tech, low expense, and the only tough part of it was figuring out how to get people to the sites where you kill them. So first, they brought death to the Jews in the Soviet Union. And having done that, they had crossed the Rubicon. Once they were killing women and children in the Soviet Union, what was to stop them from killing women and children everywhere else, given their definition of the Jews? The only thing that stopped them was how to do it. Once they figured that out, they began building the sites that would do it. Um, it's a myth that these sites were incredibly technologically sophisticated or complicated. They weren't. The first gas chambers in the east at places like Zobibor, Belchech, and uh, Treblinka were built out of two wooden walls separated by a layer of sand in between and tar paper on the outside. Can you imagine how cheap that was to build? And after they had killed, in the case of all these camps, after they had killed several tens of thousands of people, they then built concrete gas chambers. But the way you build those is you put two, levels of, two layers of wood and you pour the concrete in between and you take the wood off. It's all done in a day and a half. Uh, so these sites were incredibly easy to do. Once the Nazis recognized this, they knew, okay, we can deport the captured Jews of other parts of Europe where we are afraid to shoot them in full sight. They weren't afraid of that in Ukraine and Lithuania and so forth because they thought most of the non-Jewish locals would go along with it, would think it was okay. They had the least reason to expect opposition. So why are the Jews killed? Because the Germans think it's necessary to do so, because they discover how to do it. And they also discover that it's not going to cost them a great deal to do it. It's not complicated. One part that one has to realize about this is that um, not only were the gas chambers cheap, but the process of deporting people was not very sophisticated or complicated. They, what they did is they took cars that were what the Germans called ausrangiert, decommissioned, the kind of thing that you see on railroad sidings all over the place. They brought them back into action because they weren't providing comfort to the people they were transporting. They brought them back into action. They linked them up so they did not drain the German supply of railroad stock at all. The locomotives that were used were relics. They went much slower than regular traffic. But of course, they didn't care when they loaded people up whether they died on the way or they died at the end. So none of this was a problem for them. And the effort to deport people made no dent in the German world. 
It was in, not an interference at all. In the first place, total number of trains that were used to deport people to camps is 2,000 from late 1941 to late 1944. On any given day in the summer of 1941, as the Germans were preparing for the invasion of the Soviet Union, they delivered 2,500 trains per day to the staging areas. There were 23 to 30,000 trains running a day on the German railroad system in 1942 or 43 or 44. 2,000 over three years, these numbers, you see what I, I mean? You can even do this math with adding up the total number of boxcars who were involved and so forth. The Germans had 890,000 cargo wagons in 1941, and it actually grew between 41 and 1944. So you see, the drain on the effort was limited. The manpower devoted to it was very small. The death camps where they killed 2 million people with carbon monoxide were staffed generally by about 20 Germans at any one time, and about 90 to 120 auxiliaries, Ukrainians and Lithuanians that they recruited and so on. So why they were killed? They could do it. They wanted to do it. They expect, they were, they, the only variation was where they tried first. Where did they concentrate their efforts? The countries that had the most highest mortality rates were the places that the Germans decided to kill people first, starting in 1941. And the common denominator of those countries is they were ultimately destined for annexation to Nazi Germany. Why is the murder rate in the Netherlands almost as high as the murder rate in Ukraine, whereas the murder rate in France is much lower? Because France was not designated for annexation, but the Netherlands was, and so was Ukraine. And so was Lithuania, where 98% of the people died. The principal variable about whether people, large percentages of resident Jews died and didn't, is did the Germans go after them first? Did they go after them early? And the reason why they went after them early is because they wanted the territory. One of the most famous sentences about the Holocaust is uh, Reinhard Heydrich saying at the Wannsee Conference, we will comb Europe from west to east. They did exactly the opposite. It was not part of a premeditated plan. And they did that because of their priorities were areas we want to colonize. The lowest part of the priority was countries that were allied to Nazi Germany, but not occupied by it. Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and in part Vichy France. And the death tolls there are relatively low because the Germans don't get around to insisting that those people need to be deported until after the Germans had lost the Battle of Stalingrad. And then these governments in these countries say they're not going to win the war. And if they lose the war, we're going to have to explain to the Allies what we did, or we will not survive as governments. And so you get a remarkable flip-flop. The Bulgarians and the Romanians, and, and even the French, had basically said, yes, we will give you the Jews when you, when you, when you ask for them. Okay? That they had said in, at the beginning of 1942. At the end of 1942, when the German defeat at Stalingrad is already becoming clear, especially to the Romanians who had soldiers there, they begin to back off. And they say, well, yes, you can have the foreign Jews who live in our country, who have somehow found refuge here, but you can't have our Jews. And this is a distinction that they drew. It indicates how much the fate of the Jews was in these places was dependent on the timetable of the Germans and the, and the tide of the war. Events that occur before Stalingrad, where if the Germans start and try to round people up before Stalingrad, they mostly get them. If they start later, which is also true of Italy and Denmark, the great heroic stories, they mostly don't. So that's why. Now, why couldn't anyone stop this, uh, including the Jews themselves? Um, the, the real answer is the murder of the Jews was more important to the Jews and the people who wanted to kill them than it was to anyone else. Everyone else always had something more important to do. Whether you say this is about the International Committee of the Red Cross, or the Roman Catholic Church, or the government in Washington, or the government in London, whatever, each one always had something more important to do when the time came to help. This is true even in the 1930s, when people were trying to get out of Germany, when they were trying to flee. We admitted roughly half the people from Germany in the period 1933 to 39 that our quotas would have allowed us to admit. 
about 65,000 Jews in, in that period of time, 33 to 39. That is a trivial number compared to the need. But in America, there were all kinds of arguments as to why not to do it. We had the Depression was on. They would com and the, the arguments are basically arguments you are familiar with from today. They'll compete with us for jobs. They'll go on welfare. They'll be subversives among them. Nowadays, we say terrorists. Those were the arguments used against the Jews. And since the Depression was not over, that was an argument that had an audience in the United States. There was also, of course, the general revulsion in America about the way World War I had ended, a general hostility to Europe, the sense that we'd come in in 1917, we pulled their chestnuts out of the fire, and they had concluded a bad peace after the war, and they had gone back to their evil uh, militaristic ways. And we washed our hands of them. But that meant we also were indifferent to refugees. Other governments in Europe were so intent on appeasing the Nazis that they basically did not want to interfere with a government persecuting its own citizens. The church basically said, number one, this is not our problem because uh, we're more concerned with followers of the faith than non-followers of the faith. But also because, and, and because there was a great deal of anti-Semitism within the church, uh, views that the Jews were not only historically the enemies of Christianity, but they were the modern proponents of change in any way. And the Catholic Church was deeply opposed to change in most ways, in most ways in the 1920s and 30s. There's one other reason, which um, this, is my, this is my moment of confession. Um, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so this is a moment where the, the seminarian in me uh, has to explain something. And that is that Catholic religious teaching, particularly before Vatican II, was that this world that you and I inhabit is nothing but the antechamber to the real world. The only thing that's important in this physical existence is earning your way to salvation. The only way under Catholic teaching you can be saved is you must have been exposed to and exercised the sacraments. You must be baptized, you must go to communion, you must be confirmed, you should be married or you should take holy orders. Those are the two other options that you have. You should have the last rites when you die. Um, nowadays, it's called anointing of the sick. You cannot get to heaven without the sacraments in Catholic teaching. You cannot get the sacraments without priests. They administer the sacraments. What this means is the Catholic Church is always extortable. Any, any political regime which closes churches, which takes priests away, that is something the church will fight, communism. But any regime which just threatens to do it, which arrests a few priests, but not many, but basically says you can still perform the function of getting people saved. That's a regime with which Holy Mother Church will try to coexist. And if that means not asserting the rights of people outside of Holy Mother Church, that's the way the Roman Catholic Church will behave. And so even in the 1930s when Pius XI thought about issuing an encyclical that would denounce Nazi racism, that encyclical, because we have, we have a draft of it, it was never released, but we have a draft of it. That encyclical was still critical of Jews along the way. It couldn't help it. And so in that case, that's the reason why um, the church tended to stand back, never issue a public statement to defend Jews, but it also never issued a public statement to defend the Polish Catholic priests whom the Nazis were arresting in large numbers and sending initially to Auschwitz. That is a camp that was established for Polish political opponents before the Jews began to deported, be deported there en masse in 1942. The other things to understand about why it couldn't be stopped is the importance of time. We, we tend to think of the Holocaust as a process that starts maybe at Kristallnacht and ends with the end of the war in 1945. And that's true, except that three-quarters of the victims of the Holocaust died in only 20 months in the middle of that period. It died basically between the invasion of the Soviet Union and the Battle of Stalingrad. And half the victims died in 11 months between March of 1942 and February of 1943. This is when Treblinka and those death camps in, the, in Poland were going at full tilt. They were killing at the rate of 325,000 people a month, 10,000 a day. So the temporal compression meant that it was very hard 
for people to outside to understand, even when the information filtered out. And it did. From the middle of 1942 to December of 1942, the Allies learned almost everything that was going on. It still took time to absorb it and, they, and then to identify the sites where it was happening. That took a very long time. Uh, at the end of 19, uh, beginning of 1943, the Allies actually intercepted a message that the SS sent reporting the number of people who'd been killed at uh, Treblinka, Zobibor, Belchec, and Majdanek. They were all identified by initials. The people in the code-breaking agency didn't know what that was because they didn't know the names, and they didn't know how to interpret the initials. And that document wasn't even declassified, rediscovered and declassified until after the war was over. So, and then there's also the, the physical compression. Um, you look like a much better educated audience than my undergraduates. So I will venture the observation that you can put a map of Europe into your mind's eye at the moment. My undergraduates, not a chance. No. If you stick a finger in the middle of a map of the continental United States, you will end up in Kansas. Okay? If you stick a finger in the middle of a map of continental Europe, it'd be roughly Vienna. Okay, draw a line up from Vienna, draw a line east from Vienna. So, like this. That quadrant of the European continent is where 90% of the victims of the Holocaust died. It's where 75% of the victims of the Holocaust came from. Until the summer of 1944, when only Auschwitz was still functioning as a camp, there is no aircraft from the Allies that could have reached any of those sites. Because they're all based in Britain. Back to your mind's eye. Right? And no aircraft can get from Britain even to Auschwitz or Helmdorf, which are the westernmost of the camps, on a full tank of gas and get back. Even if they'd known where it was, they couldn't do it. The only chance they had to hit the camp was in the summer of 1944 when Allied troops went far enough the, uh, up the Italian boot that they could fly northeast and get to Auschwitz. But by then, the Hungarian Jews were all dead. The number of people who died at the camp after that we don't know, somewhere between 70 and 100,000, uh, a tenth of the victims of the site. The last thing to say is that one of the touchiest, and, and even when we did that, incidentally, the, we, people tend to forget that we, we, when we finally were able to reach um, Auschwitz in the summer of 1944, the Allies still had not broken out of Normandy. The breakout of Normandy didn't come until August 12, 1944. An aircraft was being devoted to that and to hitting the V-1 and the V-2 rocket launchers in the Netherlands and so forth. So there was always something that the military planners said was more important. Now the last thing to say under this heading, and then I'll start, is of course there are people who say that the Jews should have stopped this. That somehow or another the <coughs> Jews should have seen what was coming, organized better, fought back more, and so forth. This is this is utterly to misunderstand what was happening to them, and utterly to misunderstand who they were. This is a Jewish community center, so I'm not going to say anything <coughs> surprising to you, but to my students this is surprising. Jews are very argumentative. <coughs> Jews disagree about a great deal, right? And this was true in the communities of Eastern Europe as well. There were Zionists and non-Zionists. There were five different kinds of Zionists. Right? There were Orthodox, there were Hasids, there were a few Reform people, there were, there were people who believed in socialism, there were people who did not, there were people who believed in acculturation, there were people who did not. There were all these, and these communities had, before the Nazis came, their own institutions in many cases, their own orphanages, their own old folks' homes, their own hospitals, and so on. They, did, they found it very difficult in the early stages of the ghettos and so forth to agree what was happening to them, and to even work with each other, because they had long-standing rivalries and animosities and so forth. And for them to behave any different would have required them to be clairvoyant. They would have had to know that a civilized country was going to, a modern country, was an educated country, was going to do something that no modern educated country had ever done before, <coughs> try to wipe every last one of them out. And so they disagreed, they had trouble getting organized, the Germans basically made sure that they understood that um, if they did not cooperate, they would be shot. The first 30 members of the Wodge Ghetto Jewish Council, the, 
the, Jew, the Germans insisted should be appointed. 22 of them were taken out the day after they were appointed and shot. Why? As Voltaire famously said, pour encourager les autres, to encourage the others, to influence the be, you know. So you knew if you didn't play along, this is what would happen to you. They operated by a principle of divide and conquer. They presented the Jews in which, with choices that were all bad. And the result was that no matter what a Jewish ghetto decided to do, whether it decided to send young men to the forest and the partisans. And remember, this was a, a job mostly for young people. You know, if you, had, if you had kids, it was hard to run off to the forest. Uh, if you were over a certain age, it was hard to run off to the forest. It was mostly a job for guys. To some degree, women, young women could do it. But there were ghettos that decided they would put their resources into helping the resistance and the partisans in the forest. There were ghettos like Wodge where they said the response to this is we'll appease the Germans. We'll do everything they want and they'll keep us alive. There were ghettos that mixed the strategy. There were ghettos that rose up against the Germans and so forth. Whatever they chose, they end the same way. No outcome is, if you judge by the number of survivors, no outcome is numerically preferable. All of the outcomes available to them were bad. And thus it seems to me the very question why didn't the Jews stop this? Is an inappropriate question. So that's basically the gist of my book. I, I think I'll be glad to answer questions. Is that right? Thank you all very much. We'll take a few questions. Please stand. Say your question loudly. Yes, Toby. I've heard lots and lots of discussions about the Holocaust. We went to visit Auschwitz last year. Is it, it's still hard for me to believe that the German people really bought the story and that they really hated the Jews because they were bad for German? Is that, that's really the... I think more of them did over time. I mean, it's certainly not true that the German people believed this and therefore elected Hitler to do this. But the more it was pounded into the heads, particularly the young people. Now, if you read accounts of Kristallnacht, where you know the, the, the mobs they come, they burn the synagogues, and then they, and then they uh, they go into people's houses, and they and they smash furniture, and they do all this, and then the next morning, they march the Jewish men to the train station of the town through the crowds, and they're subjected to humiliation and so forth. Almost all those accounts will tell you the worst people they were dealing with were the teenagers. Because they're the ones who had come of age, you know, after 1933, and they've been listening to this over and over and over, and they absorb it. And certainly the people who are doing, I mean, doing the killing in the camps, remember there's relatively few of them, but they think they're doing the right thing. They believe in it. And so, and those SS men who are out there in the East shooting people by the thousands and so forth, they... You know, the, the story of Eichmann, the story that he's a sort of soulless bureaucrat, is nonsense. He absolutely believed that this was the right thing for Germany. These people were the enemies. They were engaged in what they called themselves Flurbereinigung, house cleaning. And so, you know, the, 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 the perpetrators are actually ideologically convinced people. They are. Now, it, in a dictatorship, it doesn't matter if everybody agrees. All that matters is that everybody conforms. And that's what happened. Um, you know, I can't believe in a city of Berlin when the Jews are being marched to the deportation place because the, you know, the, the first place where they were being sent from is six kilometers from the place they were collected. So they had to march through the city early in the morning. I can't believe that a cosmopolitan city like that where people that had Jewish neighbors and so forth were looking at that and agreeing with it, but they were letting it happen. Yes. Over there. So, yes. Let's talk about what's happening here, if you don't oh, mind. That's not happening in this country now, because it's all relevant. You said 37% was his, his approval rating, and guess what Trump's That's a different kind of state. Right now. Yeah. I'm sorry? It's a different kind of system, you understand. It is, but it isn't. And we're seeing a lot of the things that happened then happening here. How do we stop this cycle? 
Well, I, I tell you, I, I'm not sure you're seeing a lot of the same things. Um, I was much more worried before the inauguration than I am now. Um, a couple of reasons is that, remember, the way Hitler did this was he got a, an enabling act. A de, he could rule by decree. Whatever comparisons you want to draw, Trump can rule by decree. He can issue executive orders, but they're all pretty tepid and they're restricted. The other thing is, if he could rule by decree, he could sweep away the states, which he did. Nobody in, in the American Constitution can sweep away the states. Uh, you might be able to intimidate the courts, but you can't close them. You can't do any of those things. So I think we have a lot of institutional checks in this country. The other thing is, I don't think that uh, the other thing is the, the the Trumpists or whatever you want to call them have not invoked a lot of violence. Remember, the Nazi seizure of power was all about violence. Thirty thousand stormtroopers turned into police who rounded up people and beat them up in cellars. We haven't seen that yet. We don't have Trump troopers, and so on. Um, the institutions that we have in this society are a lot stronger. The other thing is Hitler wanted to destroy the political system. I think the Trump people just want to use the political system to their ends. That's different. So, I, you know, I think the comparisons are a little panicky. Um, I'm not a partisan of the current administration, but I think they're a little panicky. Yes, sir. Why did the Germans go to use an annihilation, annihilation rather than use the Jews as, as the whole body of them as slave laborers. I mean, there were in, in Poland there were Jews who were very talented industrially as as machine workers, and they they killed them. You know, the irrationality of the Nazi mentality is such that, that, you, that one of the problems is Jews thought they'd be rational. They weren't. They thought that all Jews are intrinsically, by definition, their enemy. So even if they're momentarily useful, they are still a mortal threat. And as long as they thought they were winning the war, then you can kill all the mortal threats. And that's what they do. And then they begin to conclude, you know, they, they conclude a little later than the Allied governments when they're losing. And by the time they figure out that they need all these laborers, it's late 1943. And they have killed virtually everybody. The last 300,000 in Poland were eliminated in 1943. Then they begin to keep people alive. So the, more, the survival rate among Hungarian Jewish women is probably the largest group that you can, the biggest survival rate of a group you can define. Why is that? Because they're deported late, early 1944, because they know they need, they think the women have fine motor skills and they need them in the building of weapons. And so they select more of the women to go right, not, they don't stay in Auschwitz. They, they are deported to Auschwitz and they go right on to labor camps in Germany. So at the end, you know, they, they sort of begin thinking rationally, but up until then, they think they're on top of the world. They don't need these people. What they do need to do is destroy these people in their crazy mental environment, and they do it. Yes? You read about Hitler as a great communicator, and the skills that he had in terms of communication and reaching out. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on the power of that and what it did to impact what you just talked about? It's really tough for a foreigner to understand. I mean, I have, I, my German is pretty good. And, um, you know, they, I, my German is good enough that when I'm talking German with them, they say, are you from uh, the Netherlands? So, you know, they, it's almost there, but not quite. And uh, so, and I have sat with German colleagues and friends and watched speeches, and, and they tell me how enormously rhetorically effective it is and it's lost in translation. And I think part of it is, you know, Hitler, another comparison, uh, Hitler spoke very complicated sentences. Um, he did. And, and, and German is a language in which, you know, there are, there are, you, you can do that. Uh, tapeworm sentences is a phrase in German. And, and with all these subordinate clauses and so forth, and still get to the end, and then the last thing you do is you drop the verb. Well, this is an intellectual gymnastic feat, and he could do that, and I think Germans were very impressed with that. Um, I think also, though, it's the heated rhetoric of the time. You know, he spoke a rhetoric. It's hard for us to understand, but he was always talking about German freedom and, and German equality, and we're going to restore. We're going to the rules. Same rules are going to apply to us as applied to all these other countries. And that's why we can rearm up to a certain level. Why should we be denied that privilege? And we need to have freedom to bring all of the people who speak our language back into our borders. And this is all actually kind of Woodrow Wilson talk. 
Um, and so he made it sound, when he was talking about other things than Jews, he made it sound almost quasi-high-minded. Uh, so between the appeals to patriotism, the verbal gymnastics, that kind of rhetoric, uh, and then, you know, this is a country that is saturated after 1919 with a sense of victimization. They really think they've been robbed. The German expression is belogen und betrogen, lied to and deceived. And, they've, and, and anyone who feels victimized in that sense, deprived of a birthright, somehow, things have been stolen, that person comes to feel entitled. You can do anything to get it back, because they did it to you first. And that was his rhetorical trope all the time. They either did it to you already, or they want to do it to you. And therefore, you have to fight back. We can take two more questions. Murray Jaros, a Holocaust survivor. <clears throat> we heard many over the years after the war in Germany, especially, the people said we didn't know what was going on. Um, yeah. How much, uh, let's say, uh, credibility does that statement? It depends on what they're talking about. Almost everybody in Germany knew, in one way or another, about the shootings in the East and the scale of it. They knew that, and you know how we can tell this? Because as the Russians began to come back, more and more Germans talked about the terrible revenge that is going to be visited upon us because of what we did in the East. They knew it. The gassing is a little more complicated. Um, some people knew. I can quote to you, I, I do in the book, a German diplomat in June of 1942, retired German diplomat living in Stuttgart. She's not even in Berlin. He's basing this on you know, phone conversations with somebody, somebody who's still important. And he, and he writes this passage. He wrote it in French so that he was afraid somebody would find it and he didn't want to write it in German. He basically said, you know, people are being killed in gassing installations and the smallest child knows that. Well, we're not sure the smallest child knew it, but he knew it. And that shows you they could get out. Uh, if you read the diaries of Victor Klemperer, the, the Jew from, who was in Dresden, he at numerous times refers, as early as 1942, he knows about Babi Yar, which was a shooting that took place about eight months before his wife heard about it. And then he knows about Auschwitz, um, get this right, he, he knows about Auschwitz uh, in late 43. So, and he knows it's a slaughterhouse. So the exact details, not always, but that murder on a large scale was occurring, uh, most people knew. I think the argument at the end that we didn't know was you know, the, the only defense they could possibly put up. What could they say? We knew, and, you know. There's a certain amount of shame of, about knowing, and there's a certain amount of shame of, about not doing anything about it. So. Let me just take two more questions, if you don't mind. <coughs> yes, sir. I've read recently that there was a lot of thought, possibly, that he was a heavy drug user. Is that? Actually, I know this book, and the pros have known this for a long time. But the, it's not so much he was a user. He had a doctor who was a pusher. And so what happened was what they were giving him over time kept increasing. Now, what this new guy, I think his name is Olert, has discovered is I knew that he was getting uh, amphetamines. Uh, I didn't know that at the end he's basically getting crystal meth. Um, we did know about the drug that the soldiers were taking. Um, Wasn't it oxy? Well, it, 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 see, I, the, what this guy has done is he's provided the modern name for it. You know, when I was watching Justified, I didn't know that was the stuff that was being given to the German troops, uh, but it is oxy. Uh, we just thought it was an amphetamine. And, and it, was, it is common knowledge that the fighter pilots used it a lot, and the tank drivers who invaded France used it a lot. So I didn't know they stayed awake for 72 hours in a stretch. I didn't know that. Um. All right, ladies and gentlemen, last question. Yes. yes. Only because Sarah needs to go home. You started to talk, uh, talk about anti-Semitism, so my question to you is, there's a significant increase in anti-Semitism in Europe and in the United States, incidents of anti-Semitism. What would you attribute that to? I know you're a historian, we'll talk about present day. Well, to some degree, you know, there's a certain amount of anti-Semitism that is ineradicable. It's out there. It's just been, in, it's so embedded in the culture that crazies and cranks and people need an explanation and have read this stuff and so forth just latch onto it. Mostly they're quiet. In, in, a, in a society that is stable and well-organized and so forth, 
they're cranks on the margins. The internet has made, allowed them to find each other, and that has given them a little bit more of a larger voice. I think the general intolerance that is now being encouraged toward foreigners uh, has tended to encourage hostility to anyone regarded as alien by some people. Um, the hard part of this to formulate correctly, particularly in Europe, less so here. Uh, in Europe, it's, it's about Israel. It's about the West Bank and, and ways in which people interpret or misinterpret what's going on. And so that provides fuel to some people who want to use that to increase the audience for anti-Semitism. So I think all those things are true. Um, I actually was kind of a Pollyanna on this subject a couple of years ago with one of those lectures that you gave people to read at the Meyerhof. I said, you know, I don't, I know there's a lot of alarmism, but I don't think anti-Semitism is increasing in America. <laughs> I take that back. Um, you know, I think, I think it is coming. One of the great, uh, it is gaining. I think one of the great virtues of Holocaust education is we increase a group of people that was much too small in Germany in 1932. And that group should be called anti-anti-Semites. And the more of those we have, the better off we are. Uh, that, that was the group. You know, it's not so much that all the Germans were anti-Semites in 1933, but this long history of anti-Semitic agitation had reduced a sense that non-Jewish Germans and Jewish Germans were the same nationality. Had worn away at that, and the absence of those anti-anti-Semites was a real weakness of the situation then. Ladies and gentlemen.